Hi and hello, watch fans, and welcome to another edition of The Real Time Show with me, your friendly neighborhood watchmaker, Rob Nuts, and my co-host calling in from the Netherlands, the friendly neighborhood jeweler, Alon Ben-Joseph. How are you today, Alon? Hey, good morning, sir. I'm doing well. How are you? I am absolutely roasting. I've gone full Martin Fry, and I've taken my shirt off for this edition, so thank God it's not video. <laughs> I think we'd be losing losing listeners wholesale if it were, but thank goodness they don't have to put up with that nonsense. Audio only is the way to go, as is semi-nakedness, it would seem. This is actually very funny. So Martin Fry is one of the co-founders of Uvec, one of our first guests, and we, we were finding our stride on, in, in this podcast show. And he's actually a, a funny bloke, and he sat, he said that he was sitting shirtless, uh, and it was somewhere in October, November. But he got back from Thailand, so he, he was tanned. So that was a bit of an uh, uh, audio eroticism going on there. Yeah, 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 yeah. But we're deviating. We, we said we're going to jump in right away, Rob. So I want to give a shout-out to the TRTS network. It's blowing up. It's vibrant. It's full of passion. Philosophical debates. Some tractor stuff you sparked thanks to Niels Koster. This is a shout out to Niels. Thank you for sharing those videos and actually listening to the podcast while driving his tractor. I'm kid you not. He posted the video. <laughs> it's amazing. I'm so jealous. <laughs> so thank you for that. We go deep. We follow the pulse of the industry. People are getting connected. Advice has been asked and given. So if you want to join, we have a simple WhatsApp link. You can ask either David, Rob, or I, and everybody is welcome. Should we dive into the mailbag? Yeah, let's dive into it. I think you probably did an unintentional segue to the first question, but go ahead and fire it over to me. My buddy Joop from the south of the Netherlands sent us a message on LinkedIn. And it's actually very funny because while driving to my office to record this podcast, I was listening to my buddy Jeremy Oster's podcast, Keeping Time with Oster Watches, which we mentioned actually on our previous Q&A. And that episode was about the launch of a three-way collab between Armin Strom, Horo Mario Bro, and that's an Instagram handle. He makes amazing pictures just with his iPhone X and the loop system and Oster Watches. Yup asks, what is resonance and why is it so special in watchmaking? I know FP Jun and Armin Strom using it. Are there other brands? So Rob, I have said on air many times that FP Jun is one of my grill watches and I have the resonance actually sharing the same spot on my list with his tourbillon. Souverain watch. And I love Armin Strom for the clean design. It's North Swiss, so it's a bit Germanic design, very clean. So can you explain to our dear listeners what resonance is? Why it's so magical? And the funny thing is on the podcast with Jeremy Oster, Horo Mario Bro said there are four brands that do resonance. But why he said that, I'm like, I only know of two. So I had to Google it myself. I'm very curious if you know, Rob. And if you do, next round of beers is on me. Oh, well, you know, um, I could pretend to not know and just Google it for those beers. But as it happens, thanks to being friends with you, because you did point me in the direction of one of them, I do know. And it's Haldeman, 
is one of them with the H2 flying resonance. And that's a pretty interesting thing. I don't know if you remember a few years ago, probably oh, 10 or 15 years ago, I think it was Breguet had this lovely double escapement watch that rotated around the dial and told the time that way. I think it was in place of the hour hand. Basically, what you've got here is a similar kind of structure on the dial side, sitting proud of the hour and minute hands in this case, which seem to be attached to small tracks, similar to the kind of micro orrery system you might see from Christian van der Klaas. So it's a whole mix of things at once. And that's an interesting watch that very few people I would imagine have heard of. That is one of the brands that does resonance. And the other one, to my knowledge, is Vianney Halter, who's a very esteemed name in watchmaking, something of a legend, a bit of a under-the-radar legend these days. I think like his name was very much first off the lips, maybe again, 10 or 15 years ago, and now he sort of keeps a pretty low profile. But when you know, you know. And Halter is a legend. He has uh, a watch, at least one watch, that has resonance within it, and I think maybe a couple, actually. And he is worth checking out if you're interested in this technology. So that's the easier part of the question out of the way, I suppose. And the main bulk of the question is, what is resonance? And resonance? Why do I keep saying like resonance? It's because I've been talking to resonance so much. What is resonance? And why is it important in watchmaking? Okay. Resonance is a phenomenon in this case where two resonant objects because even, let's face it, a single oscillating organ is actually in itself a resonant object, are uh, working together to stabilize a rate which, in theory, can improve accuracy. Now, that's a very brief overview of the subject. Let's go back to the origins of the term resonance. I did it again. <laughs> resonance in watchmaking. I'm not, I'm not taking this out. It was discovered by one of your countrymen, I believe, Alon, and perhaps you can help me out with the pronunciation here, because in, in England, we call him Christian Huygens or Huygens or whatever. But I know that there's something in the throat that we need to be aware of there. So how do you say it properly? Christian Huygens. Right. Okay. Try it, try it, try it. Christian Huygens. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's keep going. Let's keep going. Uh, I'll get you on the Germans, all right? But the Dutch, that's your field. All right. Okay, so Christian, our good mate, Christian H., he is obviously known for his work most famously with the hairspring itself, but he was also into clocks, as you'd imagine a watchmaker of his era would be, and he at one point strung up two clock pendulums from a beam in his workshop, and he noticed that because these two pendulums, or pendula, were connected by the beam, they ended up synchronizing with one another. And when he disrupted the run of one pendulum, he noticed that the other pendulum's resonant effect on it was able to get it back into line and back into synchronicity a lot quicker than one would have expected. So the theory goes, if you have two oscillating organs that are connected, then they will help balance out one another's rate. Now, there are two main benefits to resonance, especially in wristwatches, which sound kind of like the same thing on the surface, but I think I, I read them over and over and over again when I was doing my research for this topic, and I kind of came down with the idea that one is really an internal benefit and one is really an external benefit. So the first of these two benefits is that resonance in a watch has a stabilizing effect on timekeeping, which you would imagine would result in better accuracy. Now, over time, at rest, 
these two watches with their two resonant organs would manifest slight discrepancies because of the material inconsistencies in the hairspring. So you can have two hairsprings that are cut to the same length, that are bent in exactly the same way with identical terminal curves and fitted to nominally identical balance wheels. But over time, you would see that the slight material imperfections would result in a discrepancy between the two. If they're linked, the idea is, and this is similar in principle to what a tourbillon does by moving the regulating organ around one or more axes, the poising errors would be eliminated and the two would find a happy middle ground. I'll come back to a problem that I might have raised tangentially to that in a second, but first, the second point, the external point, is that when the watch receives a shock, these two oscillating organs will likely be disrupted in different ways. So it's unlikely that a shock would be so uniform in its application to a watch that both would be disrupted identically. So one will move faster, one will move slower. And the idea is that they will pull each other back to the center point quicker than even, say, a high operating frequency watch with a lot of power going through the escapement, like, say, a Zenfl Primero, would be able to recover on its own. So you have those two things. They amount to the same. It's an increase in accuracy. One is really a sort of theoretical increase at rest based on the material discrepancies in the components used. And the other is when the watch would be subjected to a shock in general daily wear. Now, there's one thing that I did sort of think about, and this was the tangent to point one, and that is when you cut a hairspring and you have to cut it to the right length so that it oscillates at the required frequency and paired with a balance wheel that has itself been poised, you could do this well and you can do this badly okay so in addition to that so the outside coil of the spring is in in normal watches we'll leave things like breguet over coils for now because that'll just complicate the situation but in normal watches you'd bend the outer coil out by 45 degrees and then back on itself 45 degrees so that you have this coil running parallel to the second to last coil of the spring but further away from it this is called the terminal curve the idea of this is that it attaches to the stud, which is one of two movable arms you will see on top of a regular regulator in a wristwatch. If you turn your mechanical wristwatch over and have a good look at the balance wheel, you've got your red jewel, and then you should have two arms coming out of it. One of them, normally with two little gold dots on top of it, is the uh, index pins, and that can be moved up and down the terminal curve. And the other one, which normally has a little screw in it or has a stud in it, like a visible stud, which holds the end of the hairspring, is the stud and the end of the spring, the actual end of the spring. What the index pins do when you move them up and down the terminal curve is they change the active length of the hairspring. So they basically provide a false stud. And this terminal curve is there so that you can put the spring that's been properly cut and properly affixed to the stud into the watch and then make micro adjustments along this terminal curve to alter its active length. In uh, layman's terms, the shorter the spring, the quicker it will oscillate. The longer the spring, the slower it will oscillate. The way I describe this to students is, imagine if you're going for a walk, if you're walking over a shorter distance, you'll get there faster. If you're walking over a longer distance, it'll take you longer to get there because it sometimes messes with your head a little bit when you first get into watch regulation as to why the spring should move or breathe faster or effectively breathe faster when you shorten it. So if you have two springs, tuned by the same watchmaker at rest or tested over six positions, assuming that they are perfectly flat and perfectly poised, perfectly centered, and the balance wheels themselves are also poised and true, 
you would get a good stable rate. You put two of these bad boys together and they would harmonize around like that perfect rate and compensate for each other's deficiencies. If, however, just theoretically speaking, you pulled those index pins right to the end of the terminal curve on both watches, they would help each other maintain that same oscillating rate, but they would be maintaining an erroneous rate and they would be either keeping time or either gaining time or losing time depending on whether you push the pins out or pull the pins in so it does still require a watchmaker to set this up properly now the key with the armin strom stuff which is probably the most visible and probably accessible resonance watch in the industry is that there's actually a third spring at play here if you look at an armin strom you will see that the two oscillating organs are connected by this really cool wobbly spring it's got like three major bends in it and it it sort of strokes this center post between the two oscillating organs as they breathe and it moves up and down this is a third spring and this is what is like hauling the information generated by those regulating organs back into line with one another and you will see if you use a high speed camera on one of these things and subject the watch to shock that that spring does slightly deform and it does really pull them back into alignment and it's a really fascinating mechanism and that is kind of something special in itself so in a nutshell it's for accuracy does that answer your question music to my ears thank you i i've enjoyed every second of it and i'm i'm not i'm not being sarcastic i'm actually dead serious yeah sorry about that i did ramble on a bit but i mean it's an interesting subject when you look into it and sort of see that kind of does the same thing as a tourbillon but it does it in a i want to say a better way but like a way that is almost more relevant now to watchmaking on the wrist because you know we always say like a tourbillon is a fantastic thing for a pocket watch where the watch is supposed to be in one position all the time but resonance really because of the fact that it allows the regulating organs to recover from shocks and that's not really something that a tourbillon compensates for because it allows them to recover from shocks. I think it's maybe the better of the two or the more relevant of the two to uh, wrist-mounted timepieces. For those that need a bit of more visualization or dig deeper into their childhood, those that played a piano can remember what device they used. And if you had science in school, you also learn about the, or physics or science, uh, you learn about this resonance effect. So that always fascinating as a kid. Or if you think about kinetic energy, those balls on a desk the, the, that are wired and then keep on ticking each other back and forth. So that kinetic energy, is, that also always fascinated me. And that's where my passion for resonance comes from. But how difficult is it to make, Rob? Why are there only four producers? Don't put me in a position here where Armin Strom and F.B. Jean are going to call me up and like drag me into the workshop and make me try and do it myself. But I'll say this. <laughs> it's, um, it's not really the most complicated thing in the world in theory. I think that what both those brands have done is take it to a level of refinement and reliability, which is a really hard thing in a wristwatch. Because remember, this isn't the same as having a static clock on a wall with two pendular swinging next to one another. This is a watch that's got to ex- endure some pretty extreme shocks from a G-force perspective throughout the day. So I think making it reliable enough to have um, a mechanism of such gracility on the wrist is pretty difficult. But in theory... It's not that complicated. I would say the reason why there aren't so many of them on the market 
is basically a commercial one. Firstly, it's very niche. Very few people need their mechanical watches to have that kind of timekeeping accuracy or isochronism. And the ones that do may be more attracted to a tourbillon because of its extreme aesthetic beauty, I suppose one would say. It's, it's much more engaging than resonance, although the Armstrong one really does you know, fly the flag very well for that technology. I would say it's just, it's largely impractical. Uh, it doesn't make uh, a huge amount of difference to your timekeeping. You know, like your regular ETA 284 will keep time well enough for most people that cover an automatic watch on their wrist or even a mechanical watch that to that matter, for that matter, or even a mechanical watch for that matter. But if you're going to go for this kind of high level technology, People, I guess, tend to go for tourbillons because I guess they're a little bit more visually engaging and I assume they're a little bit easier to explain to people should anyone wearing a tourbillon be asked by somebody that doesn't know what it is. What do you think about that? I guess it's a rather intellectual exercise and it seems like they're just two balance springs making their turns, but they're not full rotations. And tourbillons make usually full rotations. The most common ones are one minute tourbillons, but you'll see different speeds. You'll see gyro tourbillons and even full 360 ones that have two or three axis rotations. But I guess that's why. But I assume that it's almost as difficult to produce and that's why resonance watches are in the tourbillon price bracket. So I think it's a good example. Yeah, I think that a tourbillon is probably harder to produce. I think that like making a cage and the, the size of those components is probably harder. Although since I've never made either, I won't comment it from personal experience. Maybe Armin Strom, because I know they like to open their doors to journalists. Maybe Armin Strom could invite us in to their facility and we could have a little go at setting up a resonance escapement and then we could try and find a tourbillon manufacturer maybe our friends at hyt will let us have a go there and we can then make our minds up at least about the assembly of uh, of each and see which is which is harder to perform all right moving on to the next question thanks for that you uh, sorry it took so many months for us to get to it but the mailbag is full thanks Be thanks in large part to regular contributors like christopher didrickson our next questioner he says hey guys <laughs> this is kind of a comment, kind of a discussion point, something we can pick up because it's been in the bag for a while. I've got a comment for you discussing middle-aged men, that's us, and watches slash sports cars. I've been told, he says, how old is Chris? I don't know, he's, he's getting there. I've been told that it's often because the kids move out and now they, he doesn't say we, have a bunch of extra money not having kids to pay for. Is that really true? I know in Sweden, that's where Chris lives, people don't have kids until later in life, which would make midlife crises maybe later in that case. Is 50 to 60 the new age of the midlife crisis? Feel free to discuss and comment. All right, Christopher. Um, firstly, thank you for posing a question, which is, of course, relevant to us both because we are, I suppose, in that realm of age. And... Alon, you make frequent reference to this, actually. I, I noticed it was your birthday recently and you treated yourself, uh, I think you were recently 44, right? And you picked up a, picked up an Ervoke at long last. And I am not yet 40, although I'm quite an old late 30s. So, I, you know, and I definitely don't expect to live 
the same amount of time again not with my lifestyle so um, I, i'm putting myself firmly in the midlife crisis bracket myself i have recently decided that i'd like to buy a gold watch when i'm 40 and so i'm, I'm thinking about these kinds of things i haven't got any children if i do have children then my next opportunity for a crisis will definitely be you know around the time i hit 60 for you alan you have children but you did have children relatively later on in life so how do you approach this topic what were you like before you had kids are you more restrained in your purchasing now you've got kids or does having kids actually encourage you to buy watches in different ways that you never did before interesting question so thank you christopher he started off his question with watches slash sports cars although watches can be in the price bracket of sports cars they're not per definition and not all watch collectors collect in that price bracket so i i think we need to segregate the two but also mostly because cars are a utility tool so you often see that sports cars usually have only two seats and if they have more seats you can't sit in the back so that's why uh, people might consider buying a sports car when the kids are older and you don't need to transport them definitely not with car seats anymore so I guess that's the case. And obviously, the older you get, hopefully, you have more financial independence. So you have more money to spend. And obviously, they say kids become less expensive, but mine are only six and three. So I, I can't vouch for that yet. I'm, I'm separating the cars a bit. Now, watches is also a bit different because what I see as a retailer and as a dad myself You'll celebrate life moments with watches and becoming a father obviously is maybe the best thing ever. So my wife actually got me a watch for each child and it makes me as a collector enjoy my hobby even more going back, circling back to Patek Philippe's long lasting epic marketing slogan. You actually never own one and you just preserve it for the next generation, I really have that approach. So almost every watch I buy, I'm like, hey, would my girl and boy like this? Would they wear this? Um, I, I said on air that I did love the new Oyster Perpetual Rolex bubbles, and I didn't buy or put myself on the waiting list for all three case sizes. I just did the smallest and the midsize for my children. So... I actually incorporate them into that story. Would I put peer pressure on them that they have to love watches or or inherit the collection or me passing on the collection while I'm still six feet above ground instead of under the ground? Yes. No. <laughs> no, I mean, they don't need to. If they don't like it, then I'll enjoy it till whatever age I'm given and then they can sell it off. That's fine as well. So... First and foremost, it's my hobby. I enjoy it. I hope they will too. And if they don't, they're lost. Extrapolating this to retail experiences, you'll see that the cycles of watch buying, especially mechanical ones, let's say, or nicer ones, and it's changing with smartwatches, it becomes older. So you usually would have seen people giving a nice watch either at 13 or 18, graduation, high school or uni, first job. So it's always in cycles of 13, 18, 20, 21, 23, 24, first job, maybe 30. And then 
if you have your first job and you make a bit of money, you'll see that first fund will either go to watches, maybe car, maybe first house, then children, and then you hit the core of Christopher's question, the midlife crisis. What do you then do? If you have a partner that accepts your hobby and she lets you do whatever you want, you'll see actually a lot of spending up until the kids leave the house. If it's a bit tight, if financial situation is a bit tight, you'll still see buying. But then look at swatches. Um, what do you think? Who do you think bought all these moon swatches? Do you really think it's kids between 13 and 18? It's probably those people that Christopher is referring at. So um, I, I think it's a total different behavior. Um, and what I meant with smartwatches, it's getting delayed now. So you'll see that maybe the first three, 400 spend on a wrist real estate, which I mean watches, is usually smart. And then, like we're having kids later in life compared to three, four, five decades ago, the watch spending on nice watches, and obviously that's very subjective, but I mean with nice, either beautifully made quartz or a mechanical movement, you'll see that that purchases are postponed, so later. So people start getting used to wearing something on their wrist, aka reading time on their wrist with digital or smartwatch. And and I have to watch out because the the, the most in in the most recent time I became a fan of sequent and that's smartwatch. But analog, I'm not a huge fan of digital, although I did start off my collecting with swatches and G Shocks. But I always envision time in a circular way. So that's round analog. Although now with my Ulwerk, I have a wandering hour. It took me a few minutes, but I kind of enjoy it. But that's still circular, right? Time is going in a circle. So I'm babbling on. Rob, I'm going to shut up. Did you want to add something to my feedback or answer part of the question? Yeah, so I suppose I should offer a personal perspective on this as a nominally middle-aged man who is not going through a crisis. I kind of had an early life crisis when I was about four or five, and I was wrapped by uh, paralyzing existential angst for the majority of my childhood and uh, even teens. And then I sort of had a personality transplant around my mid-twenties and became the buoyant imp you know me to be today. <laughs> Lol. I uh, should put that on my Tinder profile. Don't tell the missus. I am not having a midlife crisis yet, at least. And I can't really imagine myself having one anytime soon. I obviously am aware of my own mortality and am, you know, as unsure of slash terrified of what may lay beyond this mortal coil. However, because I haven't really followed the prescribed pathway that most of my friends back home have, and as it's very common to where I'm from, you know, of getting buying a house, getting married, having kids at certain periods throughout your late 20s and early 30s, I actually am having a midlife celebration. Like I'm enjoying it because I have got more money than I've ever had before in my life. I have more freedom. I have my own business now. So like I, I'm pretty time rich, uh, more so than I am cash rich, I guess. At least I'm time flexible. And that's something I really enjoy. I don't want for much. And when I do want to own a watch which isn't always necessary for me to enjoy them 
I have maybe enough watches to sell to acquire most of the things that are on my radar and are relevant to me. So I'm actually having this period at the time when a lot of my friends are maybe already getting divorced for the first time and you know thinking about buying those sports cars or like sending their kids off to secondary school or even college in some cases. I like don't have any of those stresses whatsoever. If I do have children in the future, that might change. But I think I'm lucky enough now to really sort of be in a situation where if I were to have kids, then it would be a very different experience for me. And I would have done most of my personal enjoyment of youth already, and I'd be having children in, in, in later years. What I do think oh, I would say is everybody is a watch person. And I think this Chris's question is interesting because it comes from the perspective of a watch guy who does have children and has worked very hard to qualify as a watchmaker as he recently succeeded in doing. So well done, Chris. We're very proud of you in the network and we can't wait to see what you do in the future in your career. I'm sure you're going to be absolutely brilliant at it. So he's taken on a lot of like responsibilities at a relatively young age. And I know that he loves watches. I know that he adores his Arcanaut that he wears very frequently. And I know that like in the future, he will probably go through that process where he's finally got a bit of freedom and a bit of money and a bit of time to spend on the watches that he's coveted all this time. But everybody that's a watch guy is in crisis in a manner of speaking, like constantly. Watch collecting is a wonderful first world pursuit, but it brings with it its own sort of type of heartache that we all learn to deal with or don't over time and it's a strange mad dash for the latest and greatest or the most classic and most revered pieces things that really make us feel something amidst this swirling void of despair that surrounds most things in life so wow that was depressing um so i i definitely think that if you're a watch guy from a young age you're less likely to have this blow up in your midlife because you've basically been doing it since year dot. If you're not a watch person and you do go through the sort of prescribed channel from a young age and do all the things you're supposed to and get a job and buy a house and get a long-term partner and have or adopt or acquire legally some children, then you might hit that point where you've realized you've never really had that period as an adult to just be selfish. And I think it's for these people that this question is most relevant because we see the sports car thing, what a trope that is. I mean, it's it's been flogged to within an inch of its life. It's so common, you know. So watches that appeal to the people that would go out and buy a sports car, like a nominal sports car, is people don't talk about necessarily a Lamborghini or a particular model of Ferrari or whether or not it's a Mazda MX-5 from 1992 with the pop-up headlights or whatever. They just say sports car and say, oh, luxury watch. Now, luxury watch to us, I mean, that's that's ridiculous. You would never say, oh, let's buy a luxury watch. Like, well, what luxury watch? Do you want independence? Do you want big names? What we're talking about in this context is generally big names, like a Rolex. So you're going to go buy like an old, I don't know, AC Cobra and a Rolex Submariner. It's very generic, but it might scratch that itch if you've never had the chance to develop those passions and those feelings yourself throughout your life because you've been dedicating your time and your resources to the raising of children or the maintenance of a home or a family unit. So I think there is a logic to what Chris is describing. And I think that it's something that is very common in the world outside of our own. It's something that is very common in like the mainstream life path. Whereas we as watch people, I think we know that joy and pain a lot longer, a lot more consistently through our lives. And 
it, it, of course, having children, having a house, having a partner, these things will definitely place restrictions on what you can and can't buy at certain points in your life. But I think really like the idea of a crisis is not really how we would term it. I think we would term it as a celebration. And that's what I'm going for. Something positive. I mean, Alon, you hit 44 years old and you bought a dream watch. I mean, I didn't hear you crying about that. I heard, I heard just wonderful things. Correct. And well said. And I guess it's also um, maybe the times we live in. It's uh, Carpe Diem. We came out of a weird period with uh, COVID, a weird being an understatement. I guess norms are changing. Frameworks are changing. The world is changing rather rapidly. So my advice, follow your own North Star. Do what's good for you. You do you without harming others. And uh, if you love watches, go with it. Enjoy the journey. You want to talk about it. I guess maybe the real-time show network is even also therapeutic. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is for me. And of course, it also is a bad influence, as we've discussed many times. And it is, I think, a great outlet for a lot of our most ardent listeners. Although I do know that we've also exposed them to watches that they weren't aware of in the past and have now put their name down for or purchased. So it's a great hobby. It's a great way to share that love. And I think the the network, like we said earlier at the top of the show, if you want to join, just get in touch with us is a brilliant resource because there's so much knowledge in there and so much passion. And, you know, we haven't seen it yet, but there could even be a transference of watches between people within that group that, you know, maybe even want to borrow each other's watches or share them with other members of the group proactively because they want people to experience those things or trade them or sell them or whatever at like mates rates. So yeah, that's an exciting thing. And I'm really proud to be a part of it. So, okay, we have a question which has come from the group actually sort of en masse. So we need to address it pretty quickly. We talked a lot recently about the new uh, project from Guillaume Lede and Theo Othre, the uh, Argon Watches Space One project that blasted off into the stratosphere of success on Kickstarter just a couple of weeks ago. However, you will, if you're part of that project, have received a notification from Kickstarter, which informs us that the project has at the moment been put into stasis because it is experiencing an intellectual property dispute. Now, obviously, given our closeness to Guillaume and also our interest in the project and the extent to which we covered it, I think that it's necessary that we address this and try and shine a light on what exactly is going on, although I have to say it is all very early days. Let me read the message from Kickstarter, okay? And this message was sent out without even the brand themselves being notified. Hello, this is a message from Kickstarter's trust and safety team. We're writing to inform you that a project you backed, Argon Watches, is the subject of an intellectual property dispute. The project has been removed from public view pending dispute resolution. The project's funding and the countdown to its deadline have now been stopped. If the project is restored, the countdown will continue and the new deadline will extend past the original deadline for as much time as the project was unavailable. You can find out more by reading our copyright and trademark policies. Okay. Concerning to read that if you are a backer and you don't have access to the people behind the brand to figure out what the heck is going on. So we asked Guillaume what's going on. He said, hey man, like I just got the same message. We're investigating. We're not entirely sure where the dispute has come from, but we're going to resolve it as soon as possible. Now, obviously, given the nature of our discussion about the design, we 
speculated in the group it could be something to do with that, but we thought that unlikely as we'd all come down with the same opinion at the end of our audical analysis that if you haven't listened to, go back and check it out, that the design was plenty distinct enough and a welcome addition to the industry and a wonderful project that allowed people to access a kind of watch that previously was unavailable at that price point. And so as it turns out, the dispute is because of a naming issue, and that is all it is. It's nothing to do with the product itself. It's to do with the fact that there is a company trademarked in multiple territories around the world called Aragon Watches. This is A-R-A-G-O-N. Now, Aragon, for anyone that's a fan of Henry VIII, will know is a region of Spain and where his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, hailed from. And it's basically a non-starter, in my opinion, from a legal perspective perspective argon as we know is an element in the periodic table so again it's an existing word argon and aragon the region of spain have existed side by side for many 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 years and i've never heard any dispute between the two of them about what they're called so i'm pretty sure that aragon is jumping into the fray just to i don't know get its day in the sun maybe make a point maybe just kick up a bit of a fuss but what do you think about this alan do you think that it's uh, got any legs and i mean Basically, all we can say from the project's perspective is that Guillaume and Teo are on the side of the backers. They will resolve this in a satisfactory manner. The very worst case scenario I can imagine, or the very worst case scenario is probably the backers will get their money back. The second worst case scenario is that the brand is forced to change its name, which I find unlikely. But if that happens, we might have, as I said, they should call it All Gone Space One because they were very popular. But Alan, give us your take on this. What I found bizarre and 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 this is a societal probably so i i beg everybody's pardon already beforehand i'm going philosophical on this one i've said it many times i've been thinking about singularity and ai already since uh, 2015-16 a lot i'm reading a lot about it and and i am a marketeer and i am a fan of technology i am an avid user of let's say social media and big tech but I have a hate-love relationship with it. What surprised me very much was how Kickstarter, without any contact with their user, which is Argon Watches, just froze the whole thing, sent out messages, and in Dutch we always say hoor and vader hoor. So that translates to uh, benefit of the doubt. So guilty until proven innocent, or are you innocent until proven guilty, right? So it's, it's a, a, a legal philosophy. So what happens here, and all big tech does this, you're immediately guilty, and then you need to prove your innocence, which for me fights my uh, gut feeling for justice. I've been raised in Europe, so in Europe, in the Dutch legal system, you're always innocent until proven guilty. I lived in the US. We all love Hollywood. So we're all very familiar with the American system, the legal system, where you are guilty until proven innocent. Most of the big tech is obviously from the US. I guess there's another reason why the big tech of this world, so the Meta group, so Facebook's mother company, WhatsApp, and all others, Google, Microsoft, they can't handle, obviously, the stream of content that doesn't follow their guidelines. 
So they immediately either delete, suspend. But we had cases in our watch community that Instagram handles just get deleted, not blocked. You're just kicked out. Let's take our most recent guest and our mutual friend, Hakim Al-Kadiri. The poor guy started Elka Watch. That's his handle. For no reason, he got kicked out, that account. He can't get in. He can't revive it. So the poor guy had to start Elka Watch CO as a handle. And now in the Instagram metaverse, there are two handles. So people are tagging the wrong one. They don't know which one to follow. Uh, we have Watch Anish. Watch Anish got kicked off out of his own account because he was busting fake watches. So because he was busting fake watches, he got kicked out. He was actually helping Instagram. So taking that as an example, I guess Kickstarter did the same. Somebody reported Argon watches. We got that message. We got notifications in our real-time show network. Some said, hey, could this be related to the Bethune? You got a very quick reply from Guillaume, so we knew what direction going, but it's bizarre that Kickstart did not contact the owners of the project because what does it do to the Argon brand and their Kickstart program? It immediately blows up trust. Everybody start panicking. Oh, is my money gone now, right? Mm. So I, th- I think that Kickstarter really kicked themselves in the nuts Yeah, by doing this. Because if I, as an aspiring watch brand or as a, an existing watch brand, were considering to do a Kickstarter program, I am not going to do that anymore because it created such a harm to the brand and the trust both in for me in Argon and Kickstarter. So, and this is also a discussion I have internally with, with David and you. Do we really need to put the real-time show network in Mita's hands, right? Mm. But then again, yeah, what other platform do we have? How are we going to communicate as a community? So I, I took it a bit maybe too much into a helicopter view. I don't think so. I think it's interesting. I think like your insights are on this subject, especially because you have worked in it for a lot longer than the vast majority of people, and you've had you've thought very deeply on it. It's always interesting, always valuable to the conversation. I am taking it from a more immediate perspective, like not looking into like the you know the big tech background of it. And I just think it's scandalous. I think there's terrible behavior by Kickstarter. It's massively irresponsible uh, and really poor way to treat their clients. Argon watches who are innocent until proven guilty. We know what the dispute is, and it's nothing. It's a storm in a teacup. At, at the very worst, like we say, it's a naming issue. This happens all the time in watchmaking. Just recently, my mates in Dresden, uh, now known as Pullman Bresan, were originally known as Junger. And Junger is trademarked in watchmaking, which is surprising it's even able to be trademarked, given the fact it's just a word in German. But it's trademarked in class 14, which is jewelry and watches. And Nobody else can use it. But there's at least two companies that have Younger in the name, either Younger on its own or Younger & Co. We've seen that. We know that Chapek were approached by shadowy figures from a certain big brand that has indelible historical associations with Chapek. And Chapek was right to 
treat those lawsuits in the way that he did and overcome them because there was nothing in it whatsoever. But this is just bad form on Kickstarter's part. But the good thing is all of the backers of Argon needn't panic. Guillaume and Teo are good guys. They're not going to disappear into the night with your cash. They're going to figure out a solution, I am sure. So sit tight. Watch this one play out, and in five years' time, we'll look back on it and laugh. Alon? Yeah, and I wanted to add that I received an email after that, that it got frozen, the project. So I guess the, the, the Argon team jumped in very quickly. They had the ability to send a message to their Kickstarter channel saying that they are working on it to calm things down. But the funny thing is, I hope people from Kickstarter listening, Argon was such a hype, they didn't need Kickstarter. They could have started a very simple WordPress website or a Shopify website, and they could have channeled all the sales themselves, right? Let this be a warning both for Kickstarter and all other watch brands that are considering to do a Kickstarter thing. Um, I found it a very tricky. I don't know if it's possible whether this could come to pass, but I mean, if Kickstarter decide that the platform is uncomfortable moving forward with the fulfillment of the project, I guess Guillaume could just take it offline, like you say, and like rerun it. I mean, I don't know whether he's got access to all of the backers' details or whether that is all stored within Kickstarter, but I mean, he obviously is able to send out an email as he did, explaining the situation as quickly as possible, getting on top of it. They say there is no crisis in business, there's just an opportunity. And I think if Argon manages as well as they seem to have started managing it, they're going to come out of this smelling the roses. I think that long-term, it could be good for the trust of the brand that they've had the chance to address this. Early doors, get out ahead of it, be straight up, and just face down whatever challenge comes their way. Like I say, I mean, we have, like I said in the group the other day, and I was I was encouraged to drop this into the show. This is not like we're talking about a Batek Belip. You know, this is not someone piggybacking off the name of a vastly successful institution. This is Aragon Watchers. No offense, Aragon, but yeah, what the hell? Aragon. We don't know them. We don't know what they're like, but this is a bit of a, let's say, a bit of an out there move, you know? Okay, are you trying to get a bit of publicity? Maybe you are. If you if you object to the way we're talking about this issue, get in touch with us. Come on the show. Explain yourselves. We want to know how important this is. You know, Aragon Watchers, they've been in business since 1991. Okay, they've been doing a decent trade. I never heard of them before, but they're obviously doing a decent trade and fair play to them. If they've got a clientele, if they've got people that trust them, that's fine. This is not going to negatively affect their brand. In fact, if you Google Argon Watchers, you get Aragon Watchers first. So they've probably benefited from the massive surge of interest in Guillermo Teo's project here. So they should probably cut them a check, in my opinion, rather than sending them a lawsuit. But that's just my feeling about it. If Aragon Watchers has got a problem with that, come and tell us on air. You can say what you want to me. I'm not going to mute you. I won't edit you out. You can come tell me what you think of me. Please do so. I wanted to say two more things, Rob, because I think we need to round up, but I want to go very quickly. First of all, if you come from a legal perspective, an IP perspective, it's very difficult to claim general things. What do I mean? Orange, you can't claim that in lawsuits for trademarks. Argon is an element. Same thing goes for that, like Apple, etc. So it's a very difficult thing. Now, taking that as a segue to the Real-Time Show Network, again, what was very cool, though, about the added value in the group, immediately those that have brands. I'm, I'm looking at you, Tom van Willek, with two heritage brands. Hakim El-Kadiri, a new brand owner, 
Sylvain Bernon, they all started sharing uh, info about how to protect names, how to check names, IPs in different continents. Adrian Buchmann jumped in. So it was splendid to see how people tried to help each other and literally knowledge was shared and passion was shared. And I want to create maybe an outro by saying, hey, don't be threatened by those guys that are in the group. We really all are on the same level. We have banter. We have serious discussions. We share knowledge. There, there are sparks flying. So there are deb- debated discussions as well, but we always keep it respectful and never make it personal. And if you're an aspiring watchmaker, a brand owner, also feel welcome to join us because that info is shared as well but also on the consumer level and also on the young aspiring collectors level. We also share pictures and videos of tractors, which is our newfound <laughs> shared passion. The real tractor show might be the spin-off that we have in the, in the pipeline in the near future. So yeah, we're a bunch of watch-loving people, males and female. We only have one female member at the moment, and uh, one of her questions is going to feature on the next episode, I'm sure, but... If you want to be the second, third, fourth, fifth, or 500th female member, then come along and join as well. You are more than welcome. This is an open forum for all in watchmaking. All right. If you'd like to be part of our Q&A session, then please do send us questions as our listeners frequently do. You can do so either by contacting us on Instagram, either Rob Nuds, that's R-O-B-N-U-D-D-S, or Alon Ben-Joseph, A-L-O-N-B-E-N-J-O-S-E-P-H. Or you can contact us via email, either Rob or Alon, at therealtime.show or via the contact form on our website www.therealtime.show please like subscribe follow the podcast share it with your friends even if they love tractors more than watchers they might really find a home here also we'll be back next week until then stay safe and keep on ticking (laughs) 